Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and praise you and serve you in all things. I pray you would just speak very clearly this morning to us. Through me, Lord, may uh, your name be glorified. Open the eyes of our hearts, Father, to hear you and and to know you and to serve you in all things. Father, the power of the Spirit, may we be transformed more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and open to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. In 1936, Dale Carnegie published a book entitled How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was a very popular book. It it had great influence over uh, the people of America. Sold over 30 million copies. They've come out with a new version. I don't know if you know this. How to Win Friends and Influence People in the the Digital Age. That's a real book. It's interesting. One of the top-selling self-help books of all time and in that book he gives very practical advice on just what he says how to win friends and influence people and he says things like begin with praise and honest appreciation talk about your own mistakes before criticizing the other person ask questions instead of giving direct orders praise every improvement he talks about influence and what a big deal influence is but influence goes both ways doesn't it We have in our lives on a regular basis the opportunity to influence others, but at the same time, we're constantly being influenced, aren't we? In fact, we live in a world that kind of fills our minds with all sorts of thoughts, and we have all sorts of things that kind of pour into us, and if we're not careful, those things begin to kind of sway us in a certain direction. I just thought this week a little bit about all the information we have access to. You think about all the newspapers you can read, all the online stuff you can look at, all the magazines you can get, all the movies and the mass media and the songs and the television shows and and all the information we have. Just social media alone has changed our lives, hasn't it? I mean, 10 years ago, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn were not on anybody's radar. And now, I bet not a day goes by that the vast majority of us don't access at least one, if not several, of those social media sites. They really change the way we think. I read an interesting story this week about the influence of social media. Here's what the story said. The influence of social media on adolescents and teenagers is of particular importance. Not only because this particular group of children is developmentally vulnerable, but also because they are the most heavy users of social networking. Listen to this. According to a report by Common Sense Media, 75% of teenagers in America currently have profiles on social networking sites. I'm just curious. Students, if you're between the age of, let's say, 12 and 18, just raise your hand. Any 12 to 18-year-old. Just raise them up. Y'all like, get them up. Okay, a lot. If you have never accessed Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, is there another cool one I'm missing? Of course, Snapchat. If you've, never, if you've never done any of those, keep your hand up. So that's a, just a few. 
five or six, a few. So that's probably more than 75%, maybe 85 or 90%. We, we, we are inundated in our world by all sorts of influences, aren't we? But here's the really scary thing about influences. Sometimes they creep in and we don't even know it. You ever thought about that? You kind of wake up one morning and you've been influenced by something you didn't even know was influencing you. Here's what the experts say about social media. Problems such as, this is real now, network-induced obesity. Network-induced obesity, internet addiction, and sleep deprivation are issues that continue to be under intense scrutiny because of what it's done in various studies. It's easy to be influenced, isn't it? And we live in a world where we're bombarded with information that all the time seeks to influence us and, believe it or not, move us in a certain direction. So as believers, we should be aware, shouldn't we? We should have our eyes open, kind of our antennas up, our radars looking and being ready for the things that influence us away from Christ. And so I want to think this morning about influence I want to think this morning about being transformed and conformed because Paul writes a very interesting section in Romans chapter 12 that speaks directly to this idea of influence and is applicable maybe more than ever to the Christian today. So if you have your Bibles in Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at just two verses, verses 1 and 2. The words of Paul, many of you have read these verses, some of you have memorized them before, Beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and Perfect. I want to help you understand this morning how not to be conformed and instead be transformed more into the image of Christ. So there's some things that Paul gives us here that I want to point out and kind of think through this morning together. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. If you want to be transformed, which by the way, your desire as a believer should always be to be transformed more into the image of Christ. Your desire and your hope and your goal and your walk should always be focused on being transformed more into the image of Christ. So if you want to be transformed, truth number one, Paul says, you need to recognize God's mercies. Now we probably, when we think about being transformed, we don't often think about recognizing God's mercies, but Paul appeals to us in this text, based on one foundational truth. Listen to what he says again in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, I want to make a distinction because I think it's really important for us to understand, and we're going to think through this and how it applies to your life here in just a minute. Here's what most people do. When we read to this, and we read Paul's uh, appeal, and we think about the mercies of God, we oftentimes begin to think about the good things that God has done for us. So in other words, I'm going to appeal to you because of the good things God has given to us. And so we begin to think of things like our, our life, our health, our family, our jobs, the things that the Lord has given us, all the blessings the Lord has given us, we begin to think about those things. And those are right 
and it's good to think through those things and be pleased and thankful for all the things the Lord has done for us. But Paul's making a real specific argument here, and I want to make sure we're clear on what he's saying. So I think in order to help us understand the argument, we need to make a distinction here. And I want you to see this very clearly. I want to understand the difference between mercy, which is God, which is what the Lord's saying here through Paul, and grace. Because they're different. So I've got a little definition I want you to see on the screen that's going to help you. This is kind of a simple definition of difference. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace is when he does give us what we don't deserve. Now there's the difference. Leave that up for just a minute. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we deserve. Now think about it like this. Because of our sin, we've been separated from the Lord. We deserve eternal punishment. That's what we deserve. That's what Scripture tells us. And Paul makes that argument all through Romans. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, 23. So he kind of gives us this picture all through Romans that we deserve eternal punishment separated from the Lord because of our sin. Mercy is when God doesn't give us that. Grace, on the other hand, is even when we don't deserve good things, he gives them to us anyway. Now, oftentimes, I think in terms of my children, as some of you parents do, and so to kind of put it on a, a simple uh, uh, playing field or help us understand it a little bit better, if you think about children, mercy is when you don't punish them for something they've done wrong. Well, I read a book years ago that talked about the idea of mercy and grace with your children, and, and it said, you know, you should, of course, raise your children up and correct them and punish them when necessary, and we know that as parents, we get that. But it said every now and then, to help them kind of understand the mercy of the Lord, you ought to, after they've done something wrong, sit them down and say, listen, you did this wrong, you disobeyed or whatever, explain what they did wrong, and say to them, you deserve to be punished for your actions, but instead of punishment, I'm going to give you mercy today. What a beautiful way to explain to your children the mercy Christ has given us. And so when we deserve eternal punishment because of our sins, in his great mercy, God offers us forgiveness. Now we see this in Scripture. We see the difference between mercy and grace in Scripture. Leave that up for a few more minutes if you would. 1 Peter 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? Because of his mercy, he's offered us salvation. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve mercy. We deserve punishment, but he doesn't give us the punishment we deserve. That's mercy. Then Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it's by grace, right? That's the gift that he gives us when we don't deserve it. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Now, Paul makes this real clear argument here in verse 1. He's, I'm appealing to you, brothers, based on the mercy of God. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul argues that because of God's mercy, because he's kept us from the punishment we deserve, we owe him our lives. I was reading this week about the earthquakes in Italy over the last couple of years. They've had kind of this strange set of events and a lot of different earthquakes and a lot of different tremors. In the middle of last year, I think about August of 2016, they had a pretty significant earthquake at 6.2, 6.3 destroyed a lot of buildings, killed several hundred people were killed. And there's videos, it's a it, kind of a compelling video of the workers digging through the rubble. And so you see this looks like a town and what used to be a pretty significant building, maybe an apartment building. It's just a, literally a pile of rubble. 
And these guys are up on top of this rubble and they're digging by hand because as you dig for survivors, heavy equipment could kill these people. You can't just come in and move large chunks of block with dirt movers because it'll kill these people. So they literally are pulling brick by brick with their hands. And there's this video, you can Google it if you want to, kind of midway through this search, these guys start telling everybody to be quiet. Shh, they hear something. And they, the silence kind of falls upon the crowd. And they're speaking to each other in Italian and they start, they start pulling bricks and moving and talking again. And after a couple of minutes, they see a hand and then an arm. And as they dig more and more, they uncover this five or six-year-old little girl who survived for 17 hours now. She was buried underneath this rubble. And so there's this amazing moment where this firefighter picks, kind of scoops her up and carries her down the pile of rubble and people are cheering and, and thankful that she survived. And I just kind of thought about that moment, literally, in, in the clearest of, of understanding, that girl owes those rescuers her life. I mean, she probably wouldn't have survived the whole, I mean, 17 hours in rubble's a long time. Had they been in a different location or a different building or digging on the backside instead of the front side, who knows all the possibilities that would have led them to go somewhere else. But for whatever reason, they chose to dig right there in that spot. They discovered her, and she owes them literally her life. Had they not done that, she probably would have died. Now, I, I think in a, in a much bigger, much more profound way, we owe Christ our life. You understand that? Without his mercy, we wouldn't have the idea of eternal salvation. Now, let's just put this in perspective because I want you to see this. Bring verse, verse 1 up again, if you would, for me, please. I appeal to you, right? I'm, I'm, I'm coming to you and appealing to you based on the mercies of God, right? Because of the salvation Christ has offered us, because of the mercy he gives us, because of what he's shown us in salvation, we need to give him our life. Now, let's just think about it. Paul's saying very clearly, simply because of salvation, we owe our life to Christ. Now, fast forward that out a little bit and apply it to your life, right? That means if you lose your job tomorrow, if you get sick tomorrow, if a catastrophe hits tomorrow, if something bad takes place in your life tomorrow and everything changes, simply based on the mercy of God and his salvation, we still owe him our life. That's very profound. Because we come to this place oftentimes where we want to give Christ our life as long as he gives us what we need. <laughs> Lord, as long as the bank account's full and I got a good job and everything's going good, praise your name. But the minute he takes something away, Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why, why, why are you taking this away, Lord? Why aren't you giving me what I need? Why aren't you blessing me? Why aren't you providing me? On and on the list goes, Paul says, you know, it's not about those things. It's simply about his mercy. If he never did anything else for you, if horrific things begin to happen to your life tomorrow, we still ought to give him everything because of his great mercy. I, I think that's very applicable and I think we ought to apply it to our lives. Regardless of what takes place in your life, if you have salvation, you should give him everything. That's what Paul's saying. Now verse one again. I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God, right? Because of the mercy God has given us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Here's number two. If we're going to be transformed, we've got to give ourselves to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Number two, give yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Be aware of his mercy, 
be aware of salvation, be aware of the gift that he's given to you, and then give yourself to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Now, when we read the word sacrifice or we hear the word sacrifice, sometimes we're not quite sure what that means. Now, sure, we can read about it and we can talk about it and we've seen examples of it, but probably, and I don't, I don't know for certain, but I bet none of us have ever sacrificed an animal on an altar. That's just not something we do. It's not part of our culture anymore. Christ has kind of moved away from that and he became our perfect sacrifice. But in the Old Testament, to the people that would have read the book of Romans and the people in the first century that Paul was writing to, they understood very clearly what a sacrifice was. Why? Because they were called to make sacrifices on a regular basis. In fact, to atone for their sins in the Old Testament, the Bible would tell them to bring an offering, some sort of an animal offering to be sacrificed for their sins. And so we see examples like Genesis chapter 8, verse 20. Noah built an altar to the Lord and he took some of every clean animal and of every clean bird and he offered a burnt offering to the Lord. He sacrificed those animals as an offering to the Lord. Leviticus chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, speaking to the people of Israel, the Lord said, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both one year old, without defect, for a burnt offering. Take an ox and a ram for peace offerings to sacrifice before the Lord. Right? People were commanded and called during this time period to take an animal and to sacrifice it for the Lord. Now that's foreign to us, isn't it? We're kind of separated from that. Even as we eat food, we're not usually around when the food gets taken care of, are we? We're not there when the animals slaughter. That's a rare thing for us to be part of. Maybe if you're a hunter, you've seen it, but the vast majority of the food you eat, you're separated from that. But the people that lived in the first century understood this. So I want to be just very clear. I think this probably goes without saying, but I want to make sure that you understand the point Paul's trying to get across here. Paul wants us to understand very clearly. A sacrifice has to die. A sacrifice gives up its life. When these people would bring the animals to the altar, they didn't just wound them, they killed them. They killed them as a sacrifice for the Lord. So when Paul says to these people, now just kind of think through this, you need to be a living sacrifice. Those are two kind of opposite ends. We understand a sacrifice, we understand that the sacrifice must die, but for Paul to say you need to be a living sacrifice would have been a little confusing to these people. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice? It means that we need to be willing to take everything we have and give it to the Lord. In other words, we're we're not at liberty to kind of hold something back. We can't give 85% and keep 15 for ourselves. We can't give 90 and keep 10. We need to sacrifice everything. So, for example, we should be willing to sacrifice to the Lord the way that we talk to other people, the things that we say. We should give that to the Lord. You should be willing to sacrifice the way you act, the way you think, the way you spend your money, the way you treat others, the the way you treat yourself and your body, the way you treat your spouse and your children. We should be willing to sacrifice everything we have for Christ. Now, I love football. I've said that before, and you guys are probably aware that I love college football, but I enjoy watching the pros, too. And playoffs have started. The Falcons won last night. They played really well. It was a fun game to watch if you enjoy pro football. And as you think about football and and you watch it, if you're any kind of a fan, most young men at some point in their life wanted to be a football player. Maybe you played football. Maybe you tried. I played for a couple years. 
If I, if I hadn't have been really small and not very fast and not very strong, I could have been amazing. I would have been an amazing player. I would have been like an all-pro. Other than those three minute things. But I love playing, and, and many of you played, and you watch these guys, and you kind of want to be these guys. I wish I could play, right? I wish I could play football. And it does look a, a great thing to do. But if you really start understanding kind of the life these guys led, and you understand kind of the sacrifice they make, playing football is not easy. First of all, you got to kind of be born and gifted physically and athletically. There are certain things you're kind of just born with. But then the amount of work that goes into playing football in the hours in the weight room and the film room and the practice field and, and taking care of your body. If you're going to be a, really a college level or prof, especially professional level athlete, you've got to be willing to sacrifice everything for the game. You can't have a, a double or kind of a, a, a triple mindset, like I'm going to do two or three things. No, you've got to kind of focus. This is my life for the next several years. I'm going to give everything to this. Because if you make it to the NFL, I think the, 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 still the current, kind of the average career is about three years. And so you've got to kind of have this single-minded focus. You've got to give everything up for the game. I, I look at those guys and the sacrifice they make, and I think, you know, it ought to be like that for Christians. We ought to say, I'm willing to give up everything for Christ. I'm going to kind of have this single-minded devotion to the things of the Lord and if something else comes up, regardless of what it is that gets in the way of me playing football, I'm not going to, <laughs> football, being a Christian, I'm not going to do it. I mean, think about these guys that play football. Imagine for Matt Ryan, right? They, they won last week. They're going to play sometime next weekend. Imagine if somebody said to him, listen, Matt, next Thursday, I want to treat you and your family to an all-expense paid trip to Disney World. Ten days at Disney World. You can ride every ride, get in the front of the line, go to all the restaurants, you can do anything you want to do for ten days. You think Matt Ryan would go, you know, I don't know. I don't know if I want to play in the conference championship or go to Disney World. Of course not. Never in his mind would he consider that. But I'm going to step on your toes, so be ready now. How many things do we accept instead of serving the Lord in our lives day after day after day? You know, I'd love to spend more time reading my Bible, and I know that's important, man, but I got a lot of things to do at work. <laughs> or I got to check in on Facebook first, and then when I finish, you know, posting and liking and whatever else you're doing, then I'll go to my Bible and I'll begin to study. Or I got this great opportunity to serve in my church, but you know, I've just got to get up a little bit earlier in the morning. I just like my sleep because I don't get any of the morning to sleep in. And how many things do we choose instead of Christ on a daily basis? Paul says, listen, you've been given eternity. You understand that? You've been given eternity. Shouldn't you be willing for the, just the, the few small years you're on this earth because of eternity to give your life to Christ? I mean, what things, if you're honest with yourselves, are you sacrificing for the Lord? If you had to make a list of the things you sacrifice for the Lord, what would be on that list? Would anything be on the list? Paul says, you need to be a living sacrifice for Christ because of all he's done for you. Now, let's kind of wind this thing down. Look at verse 2. So do not, then, he gives us kind of the practical here, do not be conformed. If you want to be transformed, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal or the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's truth number three. Don't be conformed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed, 
be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I, I, I try every time before I preach to pray a prayer that ends with that little phrase. I always pray, Lord, allow us to be transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. One of the ways we're transformed is by our study. One of the ways we're transformed is by understanding what the Lord is saying to us. But I want to be clear about the argument that Paul's making here because he, he makes this little phrase that may seem a little confusing at the beginning of verse 2. He says, don't be conformed to this world. What does that mean? Well, in, in the, the way that Paul uses this phrase and what the, the, the word world means, he's really referring to kind of the unbelievers. Right? There's a world of people out there that are unbelievers, that aren't Christians, that aren't interested in the things of Christ. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't look like them. Don't act like them. Don't be like an unbeliever. But here's the problem we face. There's the tension. We live in the world. I mean, we, we can't kind of build walls and separate ourselves from the world. We live in the world. On some level, we're going to be involved in the world. So here's the problem. We have to be in the world while not being of the world. Right? You have to live in the middle of this world and all the influences and all the issues and all the things we deal with while at the same time not allowing yourself to be conformed to that world. This is a prayer that Christ prays for his followers before he ascends into heaven. John 17, he prays for his followers and he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, because they're going to have to be in the world. Don't take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. See, there's this tension, there's this balance that we keep. We, we live in the world while trying not to be influenced by the world. But here's the problem. I alluded to this a little bit earlier in the sermon. The problem with this idea is that because we're in the world, if we're not careful, slowly but surely we're influenced by the world. Slowly but surely we conform more into the image of the world. And we wake up at some point in our life and we've got kind of different views than we had in the past. I'm going to give you an illustration and it may offend you and if it does, I apologize. But I'm happy to talk with you about it later. I think it's true and it's something we need to hear. I, I read a book and many of you read a book several years ago called Heaven is for Real. Written sometimes around 2010, 2011. It's a story of a little boy. Maybe you've seen the movie. I haven't seen the movie. I read the book. Story of a little boy who dies on the operating table. He's very sick. He dies on the operating table. He's dead for a period of several minutes. I don't remember all the details. And then he comes back to life. And over the next few years, he kind of recounts the story to his dad his dad at first doesn't believe him, and then he begins more and more convinced, and he eventually writes this book. Now, it's an interesting book. I read it. I enjoyed reading it. And, and from a very personal standpoint, I really hope that that book is real. I hope it's true. That's my personal thought and my personal opinion. But there are a lot of issues with that book. And this sermon is not about the book. I'm not going into details. I'll be happy to talk with you about it later. But here's the interesting thing I found about that book with people that read it and wanted to come talk to me about it. See, what began to happen with people is they read that book, they liked it, they bought into it, it was good for them, you know, you fill in the blank for your personal life. But they began to, to view heaven based on what that book said. And they would say, can you believe that heaven is going to be like this? Or can you believe this is good? Can you believe that little boy saw this? Or did, no, no, just track with me just for a second here, okay? Why is it that we would be willing to take the supposed truth of this little boy instead of going to the word of God to understand what heaven is about? That's interesting. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? 
Why would we say, man, heaven must be like this because this four-year-old said it when John has already revealed to us through Scripture what heaven is really going to be like. And instead of trying to pour over this and understand this, the truth of God's Word, we want to listen to a four-year-old kid. Now, again, I, I like the book, and maybe there's some truth in it, but when we begin to listen to kind of secular sources over the Word of God, guess what we've done? We've been conformed to the patterns of the world. You say, I didn't know that happened. Well, that's what happens when we're conformed. It just happens slowly over time and we're unaware. That's why as believers, we've got to open our eyes. We've got to open the truth of God's word. We've got to be aware and alert so that we're not conformed more and more into the image of this world. Instead, we are transformed into the image of Christ. I read one writer that explained it like this. I thought he kind of hit the nail on the head. He said, we can be conformed to the world this way through our entertainment by not being cautious about what we see, hear, and read and about how much of it we consume. We can be conformed through our education by being influenced too much by people who are opposed to God and too little by those who love him. We can be conformed through our friendships Maintaining our best and most formative relationships with unbelievers or outright antagonists. We can be conformed to the world through our apathy, neglecting God's ordinary means of grace dispensed through the local church, failing to engage in private and family worship, kind of on and on the list goes. But if we're not careful through all these different sorts of things that that fight for our attention, we become more and more conformed to the patterns of the world. I, mean, I, I could spend a lot of, I had a lot of kind of notes thinking about this. I don't have time to get into them, but just think about all the different issues that our society has kind of changed their mind on over the last 10 or 15 years. We take the truth of Scripture and we set it aside. We listen to what the world says and we become conformed more into their image. Paul says, beware. So what do we do about it? Well, listen to what Paul says in verse 2 again. Bring that text back up for me. Don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. If you want to be transformed more into the image of Christ, you need to renew your mind. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8. I just want you to listen to this verse because I think it kind of helps us better understand how to renew your mind. Paul says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. If we're going to renew our minds, we need to set our minds on the things of Christ, not the things of the world. We need to set our mind on his teaching and on his truth. We need to study his word. We need to meditate on his word. We need to consider how to apply his word to our life. We need to read his word. We need to memorize his word. I, I was convicted this year, the beginning of this year, about my personal Bible memorization. Like you, I've memorized a lot of scripture over the years. But the last couple of years for me personally, I just haven't memorized as much as I need to memorize. And the Lord kind of convicted me of that. And so I've made some changes in the way I'm doing things. And I've, I've changed some things up in my personal schedule and my habits. And I also did something. I kind of used technology to help me memorize something. So I'm, I've got a picture. Bring that little picture of that Bible app up. This is just my personal thing. You can do what you want to. There are all sorts of other apps. But scripture typer, I'm not endorsing the product. Trust me, they're not paying me a thing. To, I wish they would to endorse this product, but they're not. I just found it and it's free and so I used it. It's a real simple way to memorize scripture. 
It's a, you, it kind of puts it up and then you kind of type the first letter of each word and then some of the words disappear and you type the letters of each word again and then it all disappears and it's a, kind of a neat way to do it. And that's just one example. Just figure something out. You don't have to do that one. Just figure out something in your life so you can transform your mind to Christ. So a little ab like this, guess what happens? When I'm sitting at a restaurant waiting for somebody to get there for lunch or I'm at a, 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 a traffic jam or I've got a few extra minutes in my schedule, instead of pulling out my phone now and checking Facebook or Instagram or whatever, I'll pull this app up and I'll start working on scripture memorization. It's just a simple way to kind of take the influence of the world and set it aside and instead be influenced by the things of Christ. Now, this is just one example. You kind of fill in the gap of what you want to do and how the Lord leads you. But the point is, we need to be actively not conformed to the world, but transformed by renewing our minds into the things of Christ. And then pull up verse 2. We need to finish up this morning. Look at what happens. Do not be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You know how many times people ask about the will of God? How do I know what to do? Is this right? Is this God's will? And we should all be praying for that and trusting and seeking the Lord. But it's interesting to me, Paul says, listen, if you'll just transform your mind to the things of Christ, then you'll know the will of God. In other words, if you want to know God's will for your life, you spend time understanding God's word studying his word, memorizing his word, changing your mind, setting your mind on the things of Christ, then you won't have to worry so much about God's will. He'll simply just lead you. See, God's called us to do some pretty great things in this world, but the world wants to stop us. The world's gonna influence us. We're gonna be bombarded with ads and movies and books and music, all fighting for our attention. We need to be careful. We need to be alert. We need to be aware. Because it usually doesn't happen overnight. It's kind of like a slow burn. And we wake up one morning and we've been conformed to the world. I just want to encourage you as I finish up this morning, seek Christ in all things. Learn to love his word. Learn to love time in studying his word. Learn to seek him and trust him where he may be found. Live a life of fellowship with the Lord for his honor and for his glory. Don't conform to the world but be transformed by renewing your mind more and more into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you again, Lord, that you've kind of demonstrated to us very clearly a process by which we can grow in our walk and our trust and our faith. Father, I pray that we'd be more and more aware of the hazards that surround us, We'd be more and more aware of your mercy, what you've given us in salvation. I pray, Father, we'd be willing to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Father, I pray we do that by renewing our minds in you and being transformed more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, just give us the ability to hear you and to seek you and to trust you, Father. Do great things in our hearts and our minds. And then, Father, you receive all the honor and the glory for everything that you do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You can stand. We're gonna open up the altars we always do. This is an opportunity for you to pray. It's an opportunity for you to kind of come to grips with what the Lord's saying to you. I'm available to speak with you. This is your time, though, to respond. You come as we sing together.
Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.